What I've learned from the crises that I've handled is that there's the underlying set of issues, but more importantly, there's the trust and credibility of the organization. And if you end up paying money for something, you can always make more money. But if you give up your trust and your credibility, it's hard to get that back. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Ken Frazier, former executive chairman and CEO of Merck, the global pharmaceutical company. During his tenure as CEO, Ken faced several serious crises, both within Merck and externally. In the first part of our Voices of CEO Excellence interview with Ken, he spoke about how his experience growing up during the civil rights movement shaped his approach to leadership how he ensured that research stayed at the core of Merck's mission, and how he developed his leadership team. In this second episode, Ken candidly reflects on past crises, including why he chose to take to jury trial litigation around Merck's pain relief drug Vioxx, and how his employees went above and beyond to ensure that a potentially crippling cyber attack did not stop production of critical medicines. He also shares how his most important advisor, his wife Andrea, has kept him grounded. Ken spoke with senior partner Vic Malhotra, co-author of the New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence, and former senior partner and global leader of our technology transformation practice, Steve Van Kuyken. If you enjoy Vic and Steve's interview with Ken, we encourage you to listen to our prior interviews in our Voices of CEO Excellence series with Morgan Stanley's James Gorman and Blackstone's Stephen Schwarzman. We've included links to those episodes in the show notes. And now, here's Beck. Let's switch, if you may, to your board. Over your tenure, lots of change. Lots of change. Yes. Right? Lots of big decisions. Yeah. You know, you told the story early on about the earnings, uh, the, you know, get, get moving away from the earnings guidance. I'm sure there were lots of dialogues and discussions on big investments you had to make in R&D. Mm-hmm. How did you think about how you worked with the board? How did you think about how you got the most out of your board? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what defines best practice in your mind in terms of a CEO and a, and a board working effectively together? So our board was one that I got a lot of value out of. But it was also a board that at the beginning of my tenure, I felt like we needed to shift some of the composition of talent on the board. Specifically, I felt we had too many financial people and too few scientific people on the board. So we recruited a bunch of people who are scientists and physicians, because that's, again, as they say in Hollywood, that knowledge of the genre matters, and, yeah. and, and that was important. And I believed in sort of radical disclosure with my board. I wanted them to know everything that I thought was important about my business. Sometimes we didn't see things the same way, but I thought they couldn't do their jobs well If I wasn't sharing the things that I was most concerned with, if I was trying to give them too positive a picture. So it's interesting. I take away two important things there. One is the composition of the board for what the company needs today and in the future. And the second is this, I love this, radical disclosure. Mm -hmm. So this notion that you want to be transparent with them and open, open with them. Did that, that dynamic of getting the right people on the board, as well as the radical disclosure, did that change how the board spent its time? Where did it it put its energy? Absolutely. So one of the important subcommittees of the board is the research subcommittee. 
And when I joined, the research committee didn't have a lot of people who had background either as academic scientists or as clinical medicine folks. That, that committee is critical. In fact, the head of R&D interacts with that committee in a, in a sense more than they interacted with the CEO because those were people who could actually help make judgments, help recruit talent. The audit committee was an extremely important committee on the Merck board. Uh, we do work all around the world. We're highly regulated. Uh, we got a lot of value out of that committee because of the, the fact that they were really persnickety about everything that we were doing and would remind us of the importance of living up to our values constantly. So those two stand out to me, the audit committee and the R&D committee inside Mercus doing heavy lifting and doing a lot of work between meetings to stay current on what was going on inside the company. That's terrific. I'd love to switch to how you thought about external stakeholders and your role as the CEO with them. And I'm in that, I would put in a lot of things. Uh, patience first. But there you go, patience. Right. Wonderful, thank Physicians, you. Physicians, yep. right, in the medical community. Then there are regulators. Then there are investors. They're the communities in which we did business. They're employees. And they're society at large. All of those were important stakeholders. And they had conflicting needs most of the time. So you just named seven stakeholders out there. So how did you think about, you've only got so much time, uh, how are you leveraging your organization relative to those seven stakeholders? How are you spending your time with them? How do you balance those external commitments versus internal commitments? So for me, it was always patience first, right? At the end of the day, a pharmaceutical company doesn't have to swear the Hippocratic Oath, but we're sort of hard up against it. Yeah. First, do no harm and hopefully help those people. So the decisions that I thought were the most important were the ones that could directly impact on patients. And then as a result of that, obviously, the patient's caregivers, meaning physicians and nurses and others, had to be thought of in almost the same breath. Okay. Then there are regulators and government officials. You know, our business is a global business, and the U.S. is the only major market that has sort of a free market for pharmaceuticals. So as you go around the world, the governments are your customers around yeah, the world. Yeah. Okay, so interacting with ministers of health, ministers of finance around the world, understanding what those stakeholders needed and expected from the pharmaceutical industry was really important. Understanding your customers here in the United States, largely managed care, who have the ability to be gatekeepers over which medicines patients are going to have effective access to was really important. Working effectively with investors, obviously, is important. And then there are the sort of community stakeholders and society at large that has an expectation of what a company like Merck does and gives us a license to operate in exchange for us being a responsible company. And in terms of the draw on your time, would you say that was 20% of your time, 30% of your time, 40% of your time? External? Yeah. It depended on what period of time. One of the things that we haven't talked about is how the CEO job changes. Yes, and I'd love to go to the yeah, Right? Yeah, yeah. So when I first became the CEO of Merck, it was 95% internal. There were things we needed to fix. We, needed, uh, we talked about 
our budget, cutting costs, uh, changing out our scientific leadership, all of those things. In the middle, it was really a period of tremendous growth and investment in things like Keytruda and Gardasil, building new plants and things of that nature. As I got towards the end, I was much more oriented towards the outside as the chairman of the industry association, uh, spending time in Washington and Brussels and places like that around the world, trying to create an environment that was conducive to R&D. That was a critical part of my job. But when I first started, I couldn't even think about the external environment for R&D. I had to think about the internal environment for R&D, okay? But as I got to be more senior, I realized that that was an important part of my job. And I spent, I think, probably 50% of my time dealing with external constituencies. But in part, that was because I had a great operating team Mm. under me to which I felt totally comfortable delegating the operational aspects of the company. I love that arc going from 5% to 50%. Sorry, Steve. Well, yeah, I had a question for you, Ken, on uh, your external positioning because you... Uh, hopefully, I attribute this quote to you correctly, but you said something along the lines that when you were CEO, there were more CEOs in the Fortune 500 named Steve than were black. So you you were a role model to many people who probably had nothing to do with Merck. I just wondered how that influenced your leadership profile, your external profile, how you thought about your role and what that meant to people outside of your day-to-day job as CEO of Merck. Well, you know, when I was CEO of Merck, there was probably at most five African-American CEOs in the Fortune 500. And it did have an impact on me. I I knew that I was expected to do things that maybe other CEOs were not expected to do. I was expected to speak to certain issues. When I say expected, I meant expected by people in the African-American community. I think about voting rights, for example. When the laws were being passed in the last couple of years at the state level that people feared would make it hard for people to cast votes. I remember being at home on a March Sunday watching the NCAA tournament and the phone rang. And it was a call from a leader in the African-American community. And this leader said, Ken, I know you're familiar with what's happening. And I was. I'd read some of the legislative language. And the person basically said, the business community is being silent about this. Someone needs to urge the business community to speak to them. And so along with Ken Chenault and some others, we got two groups of people activated. First, African-American senior leaders, and then 700 senior leaders across all of industry. That's an example of something that On that Sunday afternoon, I was activated by someone calling me and saying, you're one of a few people who we can go to to get the business community to say something. And we were able to get the business community, I want to be very clear, not to get into the political fight, but to say we stand for certain principles. So I think as an African-American leader, I think I did have a responsibility, I felt a responsibility anyway, to do some things that I think if I were a majority CEO, I wouldn't even have to think about. And maybe just as a follow-up, those core principles you talk about, though, those have nothing, I mean, those are core principles that are true for everyone, right? I mean, I, 
the, the, the principles that guided your broader decision-making. You talk about those? Sure. You know, right now in our society, there's this debate about whether businesses should get involved in social issues. ESGs become a political football. CEOs fear being called a woke CEO. I fully subscribe to the view that CEOs should not be trying to tell people, including their own employees, what to think about political issues. I fully understand and appreciate and subscribe to the idea that businesses should not get involved in political issues unless they're absolutely necessary. At the same time, I also strongly believe that in order for businesses to succeed, we need a climate that's conducive both to people and to commerce. And when you think about the elements of the climate that in this country that make American business successful, there's some fundamental principles that we all say we believe in, right? Like democracy, like equal opportunity, like respect for private property, respect for the right to vote, peaceful transfer of power. All of these things make our business environment stable. It is why globally people want to invest in the U.S. because there's this stability. The free markets and the democracy that are the cornerstones of America come back to those principles. And so I always took the position that I should not get involved in politics. But I also believed that when government officials either abandoned or failed in their responsibilities to support those basic principles, I believe it's the responsibility of citizens to do something about it. And I happen to believe that CEOs are among the most influential citizens. So I guess that's my view on these issues is that at the end of the day, not every issue that's politically debated is fundamentally a political issue. Some of them are issues of principle. Think about Charlottesville as one of those issues. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that because somebody says the issue is political or because they want to politicize a principle, that it means the mm-hmm. principle is itself inherently political. And the principles in many ways are your principles, but they're also Universal. They're universal, and they're Merck's principles at some level. I think your board was very supportive of when you chose to speak out on a, princi- on a matter of principle. Yeah, so certainly when, when the whole Charlottesville thing happened, uh, that was pretty early in President Trump's presidency. And when you choose to speak out on something like that, you have to think about the impact that it's going to have on your company. And I felt very strongly about speaking out as a matter of personal conscience, but I called my board and I said, I'm going to step off the president's business council. The question I ask you is not whether I should or not, because I'm going to do that. The question I'm asking the board is, when I put out a statement, because you could do it quietly or you could do it with a statement, do you want that statement to be on behalf of me personally, or should I be speaking to Merck's values? And I'm very proud that uniformly and unanimously, they said, we want you to speak to the company's values, not just to your own personal conscience. So that was was not an easy moment, but I actually believe strongly that our employees wanted to see the company 
speak up on certain issues. Now, let me be very clear. Our employees don't have one political view either. And one of the challenges of leading today is leading a polarized workforce. And, you know, one of the things that I remember about that whole Charlottesville thing was that shortly after that, I went to speak at one of our plants. This plant happens to be in North Carolina. And I went to speak to a bunch of my colleagues in the manufacturing plant. And I stood up and I, I wanted them to understand that I respected them and their views and that I didn't have a, a point of view that because they might have voted for the president that they had a certain series of values that I frowned upon. And I said at the same time that I, I respect your views. I hope you'll respect mine. And it was an actually an interesting experience because when I stood up, I looked across this cafeteria full of people, mostly manufacturing people, and people had their arms crossed. And they uncrossed their arms because what people want is to be accepted and not judged. And this is an important aspect of leadership. We're talking about it in the context of politics now, but it's really critical for leaders to show their employees that they're listening, that they care for these people, that they respect these people. Because you can't lead, again, just because you have positional power. If you don't have influence on people, there's no way that you can lead. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Can we maybe switch to how did you think about your operating model as a leader? Are there three or four tenants or three or four things that kind of drove how you thought about how how do I lead? How do I spend my time? How do I make sure I have the energy so that I'm presenting the very best of Ken Frazier uh, whenever I'm out there talking with my colleagues representing Merck? Well, I would start with the importance of purpose. And I thought my fundamental job was to be a guardian of Merck's values and heritage. So that was the first thing, is that it was really about Merck. The second thing I would say is I thought it was really important to be humble in the job. You know, my dad was a janitor. He scrubbed floors for a living. My father was 10 feet tall in my eyes. And so the idea that because I was sitting in a CEO chair, I would become important, I realized that when people came into my office, they were speaking to the CEO. They were not speaking to Ken Frazier. And I knew that my time in that CEO role was limited. And so that gets me to the third point, which is when I was in that chair, it was my job to serve my employees, to serve my patients. It was really not about me. And that helped me a lot as I started to step down because I had to remind myself that I had a limited time in that chair. And, you know, people really respect the chair. They respect the position. And when you're sitting in that position, you need to do what you can to leave the place in better shape than you found it. Ken, it's, a, it's a obviously a very intense job. How did you maintain energy for 11 years in this job when you're under such 24 by 7 demands? Because the CEO job today, there's no letting up. Yeah. So exercise is important. Um, for me, faith is important. Family is important. All of those are ways of discharging. 
I have a great spouse. She's always good at reminding me when I'm feeling bad. She would always say, now, it's okay for you to come here and complain, but remember, no one's going to feel sorry for you because you're the CEO of work. <laughs> Just remember that. <laughs> and so having a spouse that sort of balances your point of view. But I've got to be honest, it, the job was exhausting. And I stayed past 65, which was the mandatory retirement age. And I used to fly around the world, get off a plane, function fully, come back, do something. I could start to see that my energy was ebbing, right? And the other thing I would say to my board is, it's time for someone with a different perspective on the issues we face now. And any idea I haven't come forward with in my first 11 years, I would say to them, is probably mischief at this point. So let's bring somebody in with the energy, with the perspective, the drive to take the company to the next place. But it, it is a job that is exhausting, I have to say. Yeah. I, I'm just going to go one step further, if I may. Um, uh, everyone who has interacted with you and uh, been with you in business and settings more broadly talk about how inspiring you are. How do you maintain that in setting after setting after setting? Because it's so hard to present the very best of who you are all of the time. When people say you're inspiring, I think it's what you're saying that they find inspirational. Right. It's not me. What I believe is that we as humans have a lot more in common than, than we actually acknowledge when we're being tribal. What I have found is that when you try to speak to what other people care about, you try to understand what they care about, people respond positively to that. I don't find myself inspirational. I just think about one night I got an award and I said in accepting the award, that I felt humbled to get the award. And we were driving home and Andrea said to me, you know, you're not nearly great enough to pretend to be humble. <laughs> okay. So knock that Way off. Way to keep you safe. Right? <laughs> you know, when you said that, you know, she likes to say, you know, you, you should be treated by a psychiatrist because you suffer from chronic high self-esteem. <laughs> so when people say those things, I always hear my wife's voice in the back of my head, which is, you're minimally okay, but that's about it. <laughs> Sounds like she's been a key counselor yeah, to you. She really has been. Yeah. I mean, I think- Say a little it, more about that. You know, you so we've been married for almost 40 years. And she's a girl from here in New York City, from Upper West Side, Harlem. And um, she's very grounded. And uh, she raised our children while I was running around the world, trying to be successful in what I did. and. She's very direct, uh, and she's very empathetic, and she's my best advisor because she knows who I really am. The people out in the outside world, they only see the Ken Frazier that I'm projecting. She knows who I really am, and so she's able to speak to my core and to support me when I need support and to push me when I need to be pushed. And to call you out every so often. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever turn to her when you had a difficult decision to make, a difficult personal de uh, personnel decision, a difficult strategic Absolutely. decision? You know that decision about withdrawing the guidance? Mm -hmm. She was one of my chief counselors on that. 
issue because we were doing this together. I was a new CEO. To be blunt, you, you worry you're going to get fired. Yeah. That's the issue, right? So we went through the whole Vioxx litigation together. The first case we lost in a big way in the Sunday New York Times had a paragraph in it. It said something like, the company's probably going to go bankrupt and they can blame it on the ineptitude of their lawyer. And my spouse, really? I remember she, she was in Bermuda at the time with the kids and I flew down because I needed one day with her. And I had to come back on Monday. And she sort of teased me about it. She's like, you know, I don't know if I can be around somebody <laughs> who's inept on the front page of the New York Times. But that was her way of saying, come on, you know, you're a big boy. You'll survive this. Uh, so she's been a great counselor and a great yeah. supporter. So important. So you know, I love her and I respect her is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And if she's on my side, that gets me through the day. I felt the same way. I, we talked about Roy Vagelos. Withdrawing guidance was hard, but at the end of that day, I got a note from Roy. It simply said, Ken, you did the right thing, Roy. Well, that made all the difference in the world, mm. that these people that I respect and care about and admire are supportive of me. Because, you know, at the end of the day, people think CEOs are different, but we're no different from everybody else. We have all the human tendencies. We want everyone to like us. And so when we make hard decisions, we're worried that people won't like us. Do you know what I mean? We want to be accepted by people. There's just certain things that we have as humans. And all of those insecurities are part of what we have to overcome in this job. You more so than many, both within Merck and beyond, have dealt with a lot of crises. Mm -hmm. Biox, the cyber attack on Merck, you played a leading role in the Penn State crisis. Mm -hmm. We can take each one of those three or any one of okay. them. I'd love to just think about. They're all very different. Yes. So Viox was a major crisis. Right. I think we got sued 60,000 times and the street thought it was gonna cost 50 billion. It was a real crisis, but I think that what all of these crises have in common is that there is the fundamental issue, the underlying issue that has to be addressed. In this case, trying cases to juries, because we made the decision that we weren't going to settle. We were going to actually fight these cases, which was different from what other pharma companies had done up until that time, because it was sort of common belief that you couldn't try science cases to jurors. They just would never understand it, et cetera. Ultimately, people thought of it as a litigation strategy, but it was, again, an affirmation of our values. The plaintiffs were saying in that case that the company put profits before patient welfare, and we couldn't live with that. We had to defend who we were. And so we saw this litigation, and by the way, all the public discussion that went around it, uh, because we responded in the news cycle to every allegation. We didn't wait for lawyers to clear statements or any of those things. It was all about saying, let us tell you who we really are and how we could deal with it authentically. I remember my board said to me, we're going to judge you by whether we get out of this litigation okay from a financial standpoint. But what you're really going to be judged by is whether you can restore Merck to a point where the scientists can come in every day and focus on their work. That's your number one objective. So I think at the end of the day, there's the litigation side of it, but the most important part of most of these crises is whether or not you can maintain public trust and credibility. 
okay? And that's what we were fighting for, was to remind physicians and patients what Merck is ultimately about. You know, we make something like 11 of the 16 vaccines that are mandatory for children. And if people stop trusting a company like Merck, it has real implications. Mm -hmm. So we made the decision that we were going to fight the cases one by one. I think we tried 19 in about a two and a half year period. I think we won 14 out of 19, a couple of hung juries. And we were able to reverse the cases that we lost. And as a result, we settled all the cases for less than $5 billion. So that was a crisis averted. Yeah. Penn State's, and a value statement. It so, was, yeah. because at the end of the day, what mattered in that litigation was employees were looking to senior management, mostly the CEO, but also the general counsel, to make sure that what they believed to be true about the company and, their, and its values were still true about the company and its values. Penn State was a whole different challenge. I would say that of all the crises that I ever dealt with, that was for me personally, the hardest one that I've ever done. It happened when I was a new CEO. My wife had just been diagnosed with cancer. So a lot of stuff was going on in my life. And like many Penn Staters, I'm a very proud alum of Penn State. And as you know, the issue involved uh, Jerry Sandusky, who molested a lot of young boys uh, in the football facility. So by necessity, it, it involved the public's perspective on the football program, and in particular, Joe Paterno, who's another person who, in my mind, is 10 feet tall. Wonderful things. Coached at that school for nearly 60 years. Now, not many football coaches have the library named after them. Okay, That's the kind of human being he was. But once again, we had two sets of values that we had to balance. One was the fundamental values of the school, including taking care of young people and children on the one hand. And the other one was our alums wanted to see us defend the school. What was different about Vioxx in Penn State was I had no, I felt no inconsistency between Merck's values and defending Merck in court. In fact, defending it in court was supporting those values. In the case of Penn State, as we began to understand the facts, as we could understand them, I felt it was less possible to defend the football program and defend our values around taking care of children. And so we made the decisions that that everybody knows now, including uh, allowing a thoroughgoing investigation of the school The president was let go. The head football coach was let go. Other people were let go. But, you know, here's a story that I've never told before. So we got lots of criticism from many of our alums who felt Joe deserved better. And I understand why they thought Joe Paterno deserved better. In some ways, he did deserve better. On the other hand, the university needed to show the world what its fundamental values were at this moment. So we made the decision to take some tough actions What I will always take away from that is that after the free report came out, I had to stand out in public and give the university's response. And I started by saying, we are deeply ashamed by what happened. Well, many of the alums hated that, right? But I got a letter from a woman who lived in Minnesota 
And she was abused as a little girl. And the letter said, you know, Mr. Frazier, all my life I've carried this guilt about having been abused as a little child. It was only in that moment that I fully understood that it was the adults who were responsible, not the child who was responsible. I tell that story only to say that that was the kind of thing that you had to make a fundamental decision one way or the other. You either had to defend the university's values or you had to defend the university itself or what the university had done. And I just didn't think those two things were reconcilable. The um, third crisis that you mentioned was a very different kind of crisis, the cyber crisis we had, the non-Petya crisis. Mm -hmm. It was scary because, as you know, those kinds of crises can put a company out of business, right? And in that instance, it didn't imply the same kind of values, but we still needed to maintain the trust of our customers and our employees that we could continue to operate our company. So I guess I would summarize by saying, what I've learned from the crises that I've handled is that there's the underlying set of issues, but more importantly, there's the trust and credibility of the organization. And if you end up paying money for something, you can always make more money, but if you give up your trust and your credibility, it's hard to get that back. Again, thank you for sharing. That is very, very powerful. Thank you. This almost seems a, a little trite given just the pow powerful stories you've just told, but what capabilities did you build or reinforce in the organization around crisis management? That seems to be a, a muscle that isn't universally strong at many institutions. And that's because each crisis is different. So you can't really prepare for the crisis, but you can prepare for uh, being challenged in a crisis. So what we tried to do is to make sure that we had the right kinds of tabletop exercises around, you know, first of all, what are the areas of critical risk that where we could have a crisis, right? Right. You know, so for example, a patient being heard in a clinical trial is not completely unforeseeable. We hope that it's avoidable, but, but we know it's the kind of crisis that could occur, right? We could have, you know, counterfeit drug hurt somebody in the marketplace. And we had to have a team of people who swing into action. And that's, we saw it with the, the cyber thing. It really helped to know who was going to be on point and who was going to be in charge of that because we didn't miss a beat. So that was the first thing, being as prepared as possible. The second one, and it sounds like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, is the resilience of the company in large part comes down to the sense of purpose that employees yeah. have. So on that cyber thing, one of the things that I will never forget is traveling to our vaccine facility in North Carolina. And in order to keep these vaccines in the marketplace, the FDA requires periodic temperature checks like every half hour. With the system down, that had to be done manually. It had to be done every half an hour during the course of the day for months on Christmas morning. But our employees were there with their pads recording the temperatures because they were committed to what the company stood for. When COVID happened, we had hundreds of thousands of people in clinical trials around the world. We didn't miss one patient because our manufacturing people and our 
logistics people, supply chain people, our research people, even though nobody really understood COVID and how transmissible it was, they came to work. They did what they needed to do to make sure that patients in clinical trials or patients in the real world never missed a dose. And that gets, to me, it's, you know, I, I sometimes laugh at the fact that before the cyber incident, I had more than one consultant come into the company and tell us that we had too much human middleware. That was their phrase. But the human middleware saved Merck when the IT system collapsed. It was those people taking those temperatures down four in the morning on Christmas morning who saved those vaccines that needed to be given to children. Last question, as I know we are uh, getting up to time here. Throughout your career, but particularly in these last several years, you very much anchored on philanthropy, social purpose. I, I know that social purpose and giving back to society is incredibly important to you. Talk a little bit about what you're hoping to do, what drives you to do that, what impact you're seeking to have. You know, in the inner city of Philadelphia, you can look at the rate of stroke, which is like, you know, 20 times the national average. And the life expectancy of people in that neighborhood is 20 years less than it is in adjoining zip codes. You know, we, in our business, we spend a lot of time worrying about genetic codes, but it's your zip code that's more determinative of your life expectancy than your genetic code. So we've gotten a lot of people together to really focus on giving people affordable access to the right kinds of foods, culturally relevant, good food that's nutritious. I think going forward, what I'm hoping to be able to do is to find examples of social issues like those issues that we can solve with the combination of philanthropy and business. Because I want to come back to the fact that I think the big issues that have to be addressed in society can only be addressed by business. And finding sustainable business models that can deal with these issues. Here we're talking about what are called social drivers of health. A company like Merck is worrying about how does it actually improve and sustain life? But only 20% of health outcomes come from clinical factors. The other 80% come from social factors, where you live, what you eat, what kind of stressors are in your environment. I think as we try to address these issues as a country and as a world and try to create a, a better situation whether we're talking about climate or whatever, I think businesses are the places where we're going to find the most sustainable, permanent, and valuable solution. So I'm hoping to work with business and through philanthropy to try to address some of these social issues that, that are out there. But I say to people all the time, now that I've stepped down from being CEO of Merck, when I was CEO, the days were long, but the time in, in that job seemed short now that it's all over with. And I think the same thing is true with life. Our, our time here is very finite and, and relatively short. And so the question is, what do we leave behind? Well, thank you, Ken. This has been an absolute masterclass in not just CEO leadership, not just leadership in general, but also in values and purpose and, and humanity. So uh, just a huge thank you for taking the time and sharing these perspectives and sharing these 
Words of wisdom. Uh, it, it really has been a remarkable masterclass. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me. With many thanks to Ken, Vic, and Steve for that fascinating discussion. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't already listened to part one from last week, you can find a link to it in our show notes. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who has already done so. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, where you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com SCF. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.